0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be. Um, we will get there uh, in a little bit. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat back around you. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that, take that. That's our gift to you. We like giving Bibles away. So 1 Corinthians 11, uh, you should be looking for page 959 if you're in using a seat back uh, Bible. And so uh, as you turn in there, I'd like to thank a group of people who serve in our church uh, regularly. And when you come in, you receive uh, the bulletin that has the order of service on it, as well as a folded up piece that is our reflection. So um, coming up on two years now, about two years ago, we started a read, through the Bible program, where we started um, in August of uh, two years ago, 16, um, reading through the Bible two chapters every day, six days a week. Um, and then we took a couple weeks off throughout those times as a break to refresh ourselves refresh ourselves, excuse me Um, and so as part of that to help along with the reading program uh, we have every week reflections written so people in our midst, people in our community will read ahead um, pull out a passage that speaks to them something that seems important to them and write a short, almost like a devotional on it, it's not really teaching, it's more of just it's a reflection, it's this is what God is saying to me, this is what I'm processing through and we give that out every week to help you when you're reading, to help you remember, look, you're not doing it by yourself. It's not just you. Um, Other people are reading it too, and hopefully it sparks Conversation and it helps you think through uh, what you're reading. And so everybody who has written reflections, like I said, over the course of two years almost, um, there's been a lot of different people who have helped out with that. So if you have written a reflection, thank you very much for doing that. Thank you for serving, reading ahead, um, putting in the time to do that. If you'd still like to, we still have uh, a couple of months worth for our reading program, and so we'd be happy to get you involved in that. So if you want to use those Connect cards that Monica was talking about to um, let us know, you'd be interested in joining in. We love getting more people involved in that. So um, thank you for everyone who has written reflections. So this morning, uh, we're going to continue in our series we started a few weeks ago, Tools for Life, um, in which we're looking at different, uh, what we call the spiritual disciplines. These are different activities, different uh, things that we do to pursue God, to pursue in our relationship with God. These are things that we do after salvation. These are not things we do to get us saved. These are not things we do to try and make God like us more or make him love us more. These are things we do to say we want to know God better. We want to grow closer to God. We want to uh, be led by the spirit of God. And so we pursue what we call the spiritual disciplines. So there's a lot of different ones. So we've looked at reading scripture. We've looked at prayer and meditation. And then last week... We talked about worship and we said worship is more than just what we do on Sundays. Worship has to be more than what we do just on Sundays because God is so big he cannot be contained. True worship cannot be contained in just an hour and a half once a week. We said worship has to bleed into the rest of our lives. And true worship we saw last week, comes in spirit and in truth, is what Jesus taught us. In, it's true worship comes from our whole being. It's not just emotion. It's not just being in the circumstances at the time and feeling emotive, because when the emotions go away, then you have nothing to stand on. And it's not just information. It's not just, I know a lot about the Bible. I know a lot about God. But it's a combination of these things, in spirit and truth. It is head and heart. It is all that we are, is true worship. And so, we talked about having that mentality throughout our entire week, right? We said, if you're not worshiping the rest of the week, how are you going to come in on a Sunday morning and try and worship? That has to be something that bleeds into the rest of our lives. It's something that we have to be intentional with, with the way that we interact with the world. And so this morning, I want to, with that idea in mind, is what worship is, and we said the very basic uh, definition of what worship is, is to focus on and respond to God. Focusing on and responding to God. So with that in mind, what I want to do this morning is talk about this. We're going to talk about corporate worship. We're going to talk about this right here, gathering together on Sunday. So as the great Dr. Christopher Turk would say, we're going to talk about what we do when we do when we do what we do. Okay? So that's basically where we're going this morning. Um, So when it comes to corporate worship, there isn't a specific laid-out plan. Right? There are different um, elements, there are different details that we see in Scripture for what worship should look like and what things should be included. But ultimately, we are free to worship God within reason how it best fits in our context, which is why we see so many different churches do it in so many different ways. Um, and so there are a lot of reasons to be in worship, to be gathered together on Sunday morning. And so that's kind of what I want to focus on this morning is, why do we do this? Why do we gather? Um, and there's a lot of different reasons. We're going to focus on three of them this morning. So that's the plan for today. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in to the Bible. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, for another opportunity to gather together, to, to get to celebrate, to get to uh, rejoice in your goodness, your awesomeness, who you are um, Lord, I pray this morning uh, against any distractions, any attacks from the devil, Lord, that you would keep us focused on you. Um, God, we came here today to glorify you, to worship you, to make much of you, to find rest in you. Today is about you, so Lord, help us to focus on you. Um, God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. And we pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So before we get to 1 Corinthians, um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, as I said, different reasons why we worship. The first one is that we were made for community, and we are made to worship. It's who we are. It's what we are made to do. And I take you back, all the way back to Genesis 126. We're going to have a lot of scripture coming at you this morning. Um, So if you don't take notes, today's a really good day to start taking notes, because I'm going to give you a lot of references this morning. Uh, Genesis 126. In the beginning, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Right? God has created all things. He spoke and existence starts to happen. And then he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so we see the community of God, the the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decide to create man. And he's going to make man in our image. So that part of that means that we are made in the image of likeness in God. We are made for community. Because God has always forever existed in community with him, within himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Part of us, part of our being made in the image and likeness of God means we are made for community. And we see it play out even more so if you just skip down a couple of paragraphs and you get to Genesis 2. In Genesis 2.18 it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make, a hel- I will make him a helper fit for him. So we see in creation, God makes all of these things and he makes man and he puts Adam in the garden. And he says, this is yours. You till it. You keep it. You cultivate this. You name the animals. This is for you. You are in charge. And then God looks around and Genesis 2.18 says, it is not good that the man should be alone. And if you know your Bible, sin doesn't enter till Genesis 3. So before sin enters, before the serpent shows up and starts lying and he messes everything up, God saw Adam alone and said, that's not right. Everything is good. Everything is perfect. That is not right. I need to make a helper for him because he is made for community. He is made for relationship. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God creating, calling a people to himself, making a people. Right? He calls Abraham and says, I'm going to give you descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. I'm going to make a people out of you, a community out of you. And that community of people, as they grow, they worship God together. First in the tabernacle, which was kind of like a roaming church. As they wandered around, they had this giant tent that they set up wherever they were going, and that's where they worshiped. And then later on, when they get to the promised land, they have a set city. They have the temple, which is a more permanent place of worship. But throughout the Old Testament, throughout history, we see God's people. Is, it's a collection of people in a place with a purpose. There's always been a collection of people in a specific place with a purpose. So the people in place may change, but the purpose doesn't. The purpose is always to glorify God. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do not neglect to meet together, so the writer of Hebrews is writing to this group of Christians and saying, look, there are some who are claiming to be Christians and deciding, you know what, I don't need to be part of a community. I love Jesus. I'm saved. I don't need to be part of God's community. So I'm just going to do my own thing. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, that's not the way this works. Do not neglect to meet together. That isn't good. It isn't helpful. So don't do that. Because we are made for community. We are made to be together. And as you look throughout the New Testament, the church is always described as a community. We see it called the flock, right? Paul is teaching to the elders in Ephesus um, after he plants the church there and in Acts 20. It says in Acts 20:28, 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church is the flock. The shepherd, the elders, the pastors, they are the overseers. They are shepherds, under shepherds, under the good shepherd Jesus Christ. But it says the church is a flock, a collection of sheep. In, a, in Revelation 19, we see that the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. This also shows up in Ephesians 5 when Paul is talking about marriage. The church is the bride of Christ. Revelation 19:7. 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, him being Jesus him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. In Revelation we see this wedding feast, we see Jesus come to take his bride, the church, together. We collectively are the bride of Christ. In first Peter two, we see us the church referred to as a spiritual house or a spiritual temple. First Peter two, four and five, as you come to him, you are a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a spiritual house. We no longer do we need the temple Right? Because in Christ, we can worship God anywhere. We talked to last week, right? It's not as much about the place. The place is important. There is a specific place, but we can worship God. We have access to Him through Christ at any time. We are living stones. We together, collectively, are living stones. What do stones do for a building? The brick out here, when it's actually, you know, doesn't need tuck pointing, it's resting. The bricks are resting on one another. The rest, they build, they support one another. They build the walls. We, the church, are to rest on one another, to support one another, to encourage one another, to build each other up. We are the spiritual house. And then also in 1 Corinthians, we are referred to as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, this might be the most famous way, or most known way, that we are referred to as a collection. 1 Corinthians twelve twelve says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink from one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then Paul goes on to talk about body needs an eye, it needs a foot. And if that foot wants to be the eye, well, how's he going to walk? Because the foot needs to be the foot so he can walk. And the fingers need to be the fingers and not the knee and all of these different things. The body in every different member, every different part of the body is important and useful and needed. All of these things are about being a united collection. If you remove one from the collection, it's no longer part of the collection. That makes sense. I say it all the time when I teach membership class here. We're called to be part of the body. You've got to actually be part of the body to be part of the body, right? If you were out walking, if you were out in the fields and you saw a sheep by itself, you wouldn't say, oh, look at that flock of sheep. No, you'd say, that's a sheep. Right. If you're walking down the street and you see a brick on the ground, you, say, you wouldn't say, oh, look at that beautiful house. You would say, that's a singular brick. If you were walking somewhere and you saw a toe just sitting on the ground, you wouldn't say, look at that body. You would freak out because there's a toe sitting on the ground. We're a collection. We're a unit together. All of these things are about being united. The church is described as a unified group, collected together as a whole unit. We are made to be in community. It's in who we are. It's in our created DNA. But we're also made to worship. We were created to worship. I said last week, the object of our worship was originally supposed to be God. But because of our sin, those things that are contrary to God's person and character, we replace God with something, with anything else that makes, and we make that the focus, we make that the most important thing. And that's always going to leave us hurt and broken and frustrated and unfulfilled. We are made to worship, and the original object of that worship is supposed to be God. We are made to worship, to focus on and respond to who God is. And so we talked, like I said last week, about true worship is done in spirit and truth. It's our whole self. It's not just emotion. It's not just head knowledge. It's all that we are. And so because we are made to worship... And because we are made for community, that is precisely why we gather together. That's why we get together. The church, this united group of people, is united first and foremost by and through the gospel. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I say this all the time. The gospel is not just for later. The gospel is now as well, right? The gospel saves us. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, went to the cross, and took on the punishment that our sin deserves, our rebellion against God deserves. And in doing so, gave us, took on our sin, gave us his righteousness, So that we could stand before God, seen as perfect, righteous, spotless. So that we can one day, on that day where we meet God face to face, we can do so and say, I want to spend eternity with you and I get to because of Jesus. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. So yes, the gospel is for later. It is for our salvation. But it's also for now. It's for our sanctification. It's for us growing and being made more and more into the image of who God is. The gospel is for now because it makes us a unified people. We are unified in our faith in the life, death, burial, and a resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only means for salvation, for forgiveness, for justification. But beca- and because of the work of Christ, we went from isolated individuals to a united body. Listen to it again in First Peter. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We were nobodies. We were scant- random individuals But now we're a united body. We're a united together group. We were made to be in community. And God creates a way for us to experience that deep and rich community of which we were made for. By sending Jesus to earth to restore our relationships with one another. Christ came to restore our relationship with God, yes. But also to restore our relationship with one another. Sin broke both of those relationships. But in Christ... Those things are being redeemed and restored and renewed. And so again, the first reason we gather together, why we do what we do, is because we are made to do it. We were made for community and we are made for worship. The second reason we worship together is to serve and connect with others. Now I say that, and now I'm going to say something that sounds contradictory to that. Church is not about you. Now how do those things work together? We gather together to worship God, to focus on Him, to respond to Him, to glorify Him, to adore Him. And so in the big group corporate worship setting, we do this in a variety of different ways. And like I said, there isn't one specific way in the Bible to worship. We do see certain things, certain elements of what it looks like when God's people gather together to worship. We see in Scripture, we see that there is singing. And so we sing songs to God. We sing songs about God. We proclaim His character and His actions. And we celebrate Him through song. Psalm 95, 1 and 2, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. And then Ephesians 5.19, it says that we are to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We should have music and singing and proclaiming God's truths, proclaiming God's character, proclaiming God's goodness. That has been part of worship, part of how God's people respond to him since the beginning. And so when we gather together, we sing. We also see that throughout Scripture there's prayer. When Christians gather together, they should pray, both together and individually. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we'll get to some of those other pieces in a little bit. But it says basically, so Acts 2.42, that Jesus has left. Right? Jesus has risen from the dead Amen. he showed up to hundreds and hundreds of people because he actually physically rose from the dead and then he ascended back into heaven back to where he belongs and then all the Christians had to look around and say "Okay, now how do we do this without him how do we figure out how to worship how do we figure out how to live this life now that he's not here and then we see the church start and what are the basic elements the basic things they just said "Okay, we're going to devote ourselves to the apostles teaching they're going to teach us what Jesus taught them and we're going to be together in fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. We'll get to that in a little bit, and to prayer. And so, when Christians gather together, we pray. We have Christians getting together in here before church even starts. We have a prayer time upstairs at about 10.15 10, 10, 10, 10, every week. We have people upstairs praying for our service, praying for one another, praying before church even begins. And then we cover this service in prayer throughout it. Why? Because that's what God's people do when we get together. Because there's power there in being able to address and go and go before God, lifting up our worries, our concerns, our needs, our joys. So Christians get together and we pray. We also read scripture. When Christians gather together, the Bible should be read, both out loud and individually. 1 Timothy 4, 4.13 says, Until I come, Paul is teaching his... his uh, Disciple Timothy about how to run the church basically he says until I come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation and to teaching. And so we see the reading of scripture and preaching of the word exhortation and teaching. This is what Timothy was entrusted to do. It's what we as the church do when we gather. We open up the Bible. You are never going to come to a service on Sunday as long as I am the pastor of this church where we don't open the Bible and read from it. We're not proclaiming. We are always going to preach the Bible. That's what's going to happen here because that's what we're made to do. That's what we're called to do when we gather together. You see, corporate worship, these are all things, these elements of what the service is supposed to look like. There's flexibility there, but it was never this passive idea. It's never this show that is to be put on stage, right? All of these different things require action, require interaction. It was a community of believers together, worshiping God actively. And so again, that takes a lot of different shapes and forms. But it was never just these set people, they, they put on the Christian show, they put on the church show, and we just take it in. Romans twelve four through 8 gives us a good idea of what it looks like for the church community to worship together. It says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in their exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And that's not the exhaustive lifts, of ways to serve in the church. What Paul is saying here is that whatever your gifting, whatever your role, whatever your way of getting engaged with people is, you find a way to get involved and you do it to the best of your ability. Not for you, but for the exaltation of God, for the glory of God, because this isn't about us. It's not about us just coming and being, coming and consuming and leaving. No, the church is about building one another up, using the gifts, talents, and blessings God has given to us to serve and care for one another. The idea that the church is here for us, that we need to be entertained, that we need to be most comfortable, it's just not biblical. Now, yes, there should be a connection, and I say it all the time, not every church is for every person. There are a lot of different styles, there's a lot of different ways to worship and gather. When you start to look at a church and you start to try and look at the flaws in the church and you try and say, "Well, I don't like this style of music, this chairs uncomfortable, the coffee's not great," and you start picking and choosing at different things like that's what and you make that the most important thing about what church is, now you've made an idol of that thing. And you're going to go on this hunt for trying to find the perfect church. And I've heard it said that there is no perfect church. If you found a perfect church, it would stop being perfect as soon as you joined. There is no such thing as a perfect church. You will never really be connected to a group of people if you are constantly just looking for that group, for that church to entertain you. If you were constantly just looking for that church, if you were just looking to consume, you're never going to feel at home. You're never going to feel rest. You're never going to feel at peace because as soon as something is uncomfortable, something you don't like, you're going to bail and go to the next church. And that's only going to last for a little while and then you're going to keep hopping around and you will never have that connection, that relationship that the church is made to be. So instead, when we're looking at churches, when you're looking at places to be part of, ask questions like, is God receiving the glory through this gathering? Is this community being built up with one another? Are disciples being made? Is the gospel being preached? These are the things to look for in a church. And so, yes, we gather together, and we gather together to serve and to build one another up. And that can happen through formal ministries. That can happen through being part of the worship team or the hospitality team or in contributing generously or performing acts of mercy for one another. Hebrews 10.24, I read a little bit of it earlier. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's what we are called to do. When I talk about serving one another, that we exist, we gather together to, to serve and build one another up. It's to stir one another on to good works, which means being intentional with your time here. Before you even get here, consider, think about ahead of time, how can you be a blessing to those you interact with on a Sunday morning? Don't just think about it, though. Don't just consider. It's consider and do. How can you be a catalyst to see other people around you pursue love, pursue the good works that God has laid out for them ahead of time? How can you be an encouragement in somebody else's growth? Because when we're coming in and we're ignoring people and it's just, I'm going to get my coffee, I'm going to sit and don't want to talk to anybody... We're missing out on what we're doing here. We're missing out on the community, on the relationship, on the reason we gather. We gather to stir one another up. We gather to challenge and encourage and bless one another. We gather to build each other up, to stir one another to the love and good works, to see each other grow in our walk with Christ. And So number one, we gather together because we're made to do it. Number two, we gather together to serve and build one another. Number three, we gather together to proclaim the resurrection. For hundreds of years, God's people, when it was just the Israelites, when it was just the Jews and God, God's people rested on the Sabbath. God's people rested on the Sabbath. That's sunset on Friday to, sunset on Friday evening to sunset on Saturday evening. So when the Ten Commandments, when you read the Ten Commandments, it says, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. That's what it's talking about, Friday to Saturday. So the question is then, what are we doing here on a Sunday? It's quite simple. Jesus rose on a Sunday. Jesus changed everything on a Sunday. And so his followers began to gather to celebrate the reality of a Sunday. We gather for Easter, and Easter is this big, awesome celebration where we put on fancy clothes and we show up on time and we invite people. Every Sunday is supposed to be a little mini Easter. Every Sunday is a gathering together to celebrate. Every Sunday is a gathering together to remember and celebrate and proclaim the resurrection. And so as part of that celebration, to remember our unity with Christ, to celebrate his sacrifice, for us, we take communion every week. So what is communion? It's known as a lot of different things. You might have heard it called the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or breaking the bread, or the Lord's Table. All of those things are talking about the same thing. Communion is one of two ordinances, one of two religious rituals that Jesus initiated while on earth and told us, hey, keep doing these things after I leave. The other big one is baptism. He says, baptize, make disciples, baptize them. Both of these things celebrate, honor, and remember the Christians, identity, uh, the Christians identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so you see throughout the Gospels, the last night, it's the Lord's Supper, the last night Jesus is with his disciples before he's betrayed and arrested and killed. He has this meal with them. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11, where I had you guys turn. So skip down to verse 23. They were eating together they were celebrating the Passover. The Passover was this big festival that remembered God delivering the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt They're in slavery and God sends Moses and sends Aaron and he sends the ten plagues and the final plague that the one that kind of was the last straw the one that said Pharaoh that had Pharaoh tell them, okay just leave it had to do with the firstborn son of every house, the firstborn son of the humans and the firstborn of all of the, the livestock would be killed. The firstborn of every house in the land was going to die unless the family took the blood of a perfect spotless lamb and covered their doorposts in that blood. And so when Jesus is gathered together here and they're celebrating this meal, they're celebrating Passover, and when he talks about bread and he talks about his flesh and he talks about blood, he's referring back to Exodus. Exodus 12 says, "'Our lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats.'" And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, and the lintel of the house and houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's what they're celebrating. This was a meal that people would celebrate every year. The Israelites would gather together. It was actually a week-long celebration of God's deliverance. And so it was during this meal, this important time, when they thought back to God bringing them out of slavery. It was during this time they looked back to what God had done. Jesus was also looking forward to what God was going to do. And so Jesus says these things. He takes this bread and he takes this cup knowing exactly what he was doing because he was the master teacher. And he's looking back on history and saying, this is what God has done. This is what I'm going to do in just a couple of hours. And so it's with this idea of Exodus in mind, this idea of a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice, and he sets it up during Passover that then communion becomes something that we continue to do today. And so if you look at the passages of Scripture that talk about communion, Obviously, the gospel passages, as I said, it's going to be introduced during the Passover. And then Paul, in this big section in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 that we looked at, Paul talks about communion in this letter in the Church of Corinth because communion was always tied to a meal. So when we talk about breaking bread, it was always tied to a meal. It's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about communion. He's addressing basically that some were taking this opportunity, taking the communion meal, and they were eating and drinking in excess during a time that they should be celebrating Christ They just got drunk, ate too much, got drunk, and fell asleep. Or some people wouldn't get to eat at all because some people were hogging all the food. And so even this passage that we read in Acts 2, it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Communion was always tied to a meal, so what's changed? How come we don't have a meal every week? Over the course of time, as the church grew, as structure and planning became a bigger and bigger part of church, there was also some order that needed to happen, and also there was this desire to get away from what happened in the church in Corinth. Basically, if you are ever compared to the church in Corinth, you're doing something wrong, because they were real messed up in just about everything they did. And so over time, the Christians said, look, we want to avoid this potential of eating too much, drinking too much, so everybody eat your meals at home, and then come together, and we'll do communion together. And so it became less about the meal, and more about coming together for this mini-meal, if you will. And so the second century church got rid of the meal, started doing this more of a ceremony. And that's kind of how we still take communion today. There's lots of different aspects and views on like how often should communion happen and should we go back to having a meal and should we actually use wine and all of these different things. Great discussion. If you want to have that discussion with me, pastortimcf at gmail.com. I'm happy to talk about it with you all day long. But ultimately, what I want us to focus on is that And what God wants us to focus on, I think, is that God wants us to worship in spirit and truth. And that's the conversation I'd rather be having. Are we taking communion in spirit and in truth? Are we doing this? Are we coming to this table with the right mindset? With the right intentionality? Or are we just going through the motions with it? Because there are times that scripture says, you shouldn't take communion. Even if it's offered, you shouldn't take it. If you're an unbeliever, if you don't believe, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, amen, thank you for being here, thank you for gathering with us, I'm happy you're here, and I I want you to ask questions, I want you to watch, I want you to pay attention, I want you to see what this Christian community thing looks like, but when it comes to communion, this is something for Christians. In that Corinthian passage I read, it says, whenever you do this, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That word proclaim means to preach. Every time you take communion, you are preaching the life-changing reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Every time you take communion. So if you aren't a believer yet, when we take communion as a church, we ask that you not partake. We ask you to stay seated. We ask you to just, no one's going to judge you, no one's going to even pay attention whether or not you're doing it. In fact, if we're really serious Christians, if we're really serious about communion, then maybe there might be some Christians sitting in the pews or sitting in the seats as well. Because 1 Corinthians 11, if you skip down to verse 27, it says, For whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is not saying you need to somehow make yourself worthy to take communion. Because you can't perform anything, you can't do anything outside of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to make yourself more worthy or approachable to God, right? But what this is saying is that before you take communion, ask yourselves, why am I taking communion? Is it because everyone else is taking communion? Is it because this is just what I do? What's your heart behind getting in that line? What's your heart behind coming to the table? And as we've been talking about, We do this, yes, we do this as individuals, but we do this corporately as a community, which means our relationships, our community, that affects the way we should be taking communion. Jesus, in teaching on anger, talks in Matthew 5. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So I said, he's teaching on anger and he's talking about worship. He's saying, look, if you have an issue with someone or you know someone has an issue with you, you're in the midst of a fight, you're withholding, you're holding on to anger, you're withholding forgiveness. Jesus says, stop what you're doing, go handle that relationship. Before you come to worship, go and take care of that issue, then come and celebrate, then come and worship. And the same can be said for communion. Are you holding on to anger? Are you withholding forgiveness even though you know Christ has forgiven you time and time again? Are you actively pursuing sin in your life Monday through Saturday then coming in here on a Sunday morning like nothing's wrong and coming to this table preaching the life, death, burial, or resurrection of Jesus Christ, preaching with your actions that, and that declaring Jesus is my God, Jesus is my Lord, he is my Savior, but then Monday through Saturday everything looks a lot different. Are you preaching with your actions that your life is all about declaring your unity with Christ and his death and resurrection by coming to this table, but then not living it out the rest of the days? Again, I'm not saying you've got to be perfect, because if you've got to be perfect to take communion, there's going to go a lot of bread and a lot of juice is going to go to waste. I'm not saying you should be afraid of coming to the table. What I'm saying is before you come up here, you need to do some work. You need to take a minute and really think and pray and examine, are you living what you are about to preach? Or are there things that God God wants to take care of in your relationships? Are there things God wants to take care of in your heart that you need to repent of before you come to the table? I think this is one of the great benefits of the fact that this church does communion every week because every week we're presented with this opportunity to look at ourselves and say, am I pursuing Christ or am I pursuing my own desires? Again, it's not about being perfect. If that were the case, no one would take communion ever. But rather, are we truly worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Because coming to this table is an invitation to be nourished. It's an invitation to be fed. Yes, it is just a little bit of cracker and a little bit of juice. But when you take it in the midst of community when you take it with a healthy, humble understanding of who you are in relation to who God is, when we reflect on the love and sacrifice and grace and mercy and forgiveness shown by Jesus on the cross for us, for our sin, this is nourishment for your soul. I say it every week, this communion is a reminder of God's love for us. He didn't just say it. He didn't just say, I love you. He showed it to us by sending Jesus to die for us. And in the same way that when... Christ was eating with his disciples that night. When he was eating the Passover meal, he was sharing a meal together. He was looking to the past. He was looking to what God had already done. But he was also looking ahead to the cross and what he would accomplish there. So too, when we come to this table, when we take communion, we look to the past, but we also look ahead to the future. We look back and we remember Christ's sacrifice, his broken body, his blood spilt for us. But we look forward to the day when Christ will return. We look forward to the day when he will gather us, his bride, to celebrate the union he has made with us. We look ahead to that wedding feast where we will eat and drink and laugh and celebrate and rejoice in the presence of God. Communion is somber, yes, but it is a joyful experience. It is somber because we remember the death of Jesus Christ, but it is joyful because... We reflect on and dwell in the forgiveness we received and the hope of what is to come. I've been wrestling with this for a long time. What, what is the point of what we're doing here? And I really believe that the act of communion, the act of coming to the table and taking communion, is a vital, essential part of why we gather on Sundays. It can't just be to sing. Singing is good, but it can't just be that. It can't be just being together with your friends. Good, good but it can't be the main point. The sermon can't be the main point. It's got to be something more. And it's probably a combination of all of these things, and honestly, I'm still working it out. But at the end of the day, this act of communion does everything we want a Sunday to be about. That's what happens at this table. It's us believing and obeying God's word. It's us building up one another in community as we do it together. And it's us proclaiming the glory of God. So why do we do what we do when we do what we do? We do it because we're made to do it. It's in our soul. We worship together to build one another up, to serve one another, not for our glory, not for our consumption, but for the glory of the God who called us to this life and equips us to serve one another. And we do it to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ because without the resurrection we would still be lost and broken and in a world of trouble. But together as a group, we gather to sing and pray and share our lives and read and preach scripture and take communion to focus on and respond to the almighty, perfect God who made you and knows you and loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you that you gave us. Lord, we thank you for... The freedom you give us in worship to, to do it how it best fits us as a church. We thank you for the direction you did give us to, to sing, to pray, to read scripture, to be together. God, we thank you for being a God worthy of worship. God who is good and just and right and perfect and holy. And God, we thank you for things like communion. These tangible reminders, these times where even though you did this huge thing by sending Jesus on the cross to die for us, and you would think that that would be enough, you would think that that, we would never forget that, we would never lose sight of that, we would never give up on that. There are still weeks where we lose sight of just how amazing that is and so you gave us communion to remind us, to put it back into our heads. Hey, look at what I did for you. Hey, look at the love I have for you. Hey, look at the love I've showed and the love I still have for you. Remember it, proclaim it, tell the world it, that I love them and I have grace there for them. I have mercy for them. I have rest for them. God, thank you for communion. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to proclaim, to preach the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the new life that is found there. God, we thank you for who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do in our midst and around the world. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.